I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today is Dan Schneider, who you may know as the pharmacist if you've been following the trending documentary on Netflix. Dan has touched my heart the minute I started to watch the documentary because we share a painful, but I would say impactful and successful story. We both lost our sons. He lost Danny, the wonderful, wonderful child that he had at age 22. I lost Ali at age 22. And we somehow found a way to spark that into a mission. Dan is going to tell us about the Tunnel of Hope. And you may have heard of my approach to One Billion Happy. And there might be so much good that came out of such loss, but there has also been so much pain. And to share that with Dan as my friend is something that I think is really, really useful for so many of us that go through tough times through life. Dan... I cannot thank you enough for being here. As we were just talking, I wanted you to be my friend even before we met uh, because there is so much similarity between us. And uh, I think you're my hero, to be honest. Uh, In so many ways, I've learned so much from watching your story. And I, I wanted to start with perhaps the most difficult, but also somehow important question. Tell me about Danny. Uh, My son was the joy of our life. He was our firstborn. And, uh, Blonde hair, blue eyes, although beauty is only skin deep, but he was a good-looking kid, better than his dad. (laughs) He was a little mischievous along the way, okay? He had a little devilish component. And when he got a little bit older, a little bit of uh, daring, you might say. Uh, But what was particularly unique about him was that he, he was always a peacemaker. I love that. He never had a fight. He never had a detention at school. He... When his friends would get in arguments, he would be the mediator to try to smooth out both ways. And uh, I had a good relationship with him. We had our little brushes, that semi-arguments, but in general, we we could relate to each other quite a bit. And uh, later, as he got older, you know, he picked up on the Beatles. The Beatles was his favorite group. And he got some good things out of that and maybe some bad things out of that. But the good things that he got was something like his favorite song was Imagine no possessions and not no God, but maybe no religion particularly. Okay. And he understood the depth that was coming through that thing. He, again, I think like your son seemed to be older than his age or more mature for his age, more of a deep thinker. Unfortunately, I'm blessed. I have a lot of evidence of that through his writings, which was not really totally aware of when he died. It was his girlfriend, his girlfriend, almost fiance that brought these writings to my attention. And I understand my son more now, unfortunately, than maybe I did when he was alive. So I share the same truth, actually. Ali was also a songwriter, and some of his words were quite eye-opening for me after his death. And actually, I don't know if you believe this, and I don't know if this is something you share, but Ali seems to speak to me through music. So every now and then I get 
a call somehow. I wake up with a tune in my head and I try to remember what that is. And following a certain pattern, I find myself landing on unusual lyrics that are sort of very interesting for the current time. Believe it or not, I know some people will just switch off the podcast when I say this, but Ali told me on January 13th, the night of his birthday, that the plague is coming, that there is some kind of epidemic that's starting around the world. And it was really, really a strange, eye-opening puzzle that I had to share with my coaches and try to understand. And he also told me, by the way, that things will be fine. My question to you is, how do you stay connected? I mean, losing a child is... I don't know what to say. It always hurts. I mean, even today for me, five years later, it's just that incredible pain will probably never go away. But how did you find your way with, out of the loss, if you want? A little bit different than the way, the way you did. It sounds, your feelings, and I don't know quite the details, but it sounds like your feelings were almost immediately peaceful and positive. And mine initially, of course, this is for a short period of time, were not like that. Mine was so much hurt, maybe anger at God, maybe anger at people that may have contributed to his demise. But I learned pretty quickly, unlike you, I had the extra complication of someone killed my son. Oh, yeah. I think more painful. And then I wanted justice. And I would say initially it was about revenge. Later, it, it changed. It wasn't so much about revenge. It was about let's get the killer off the street because maybe this person is troubled enough to kill someone else. And so the whole process was the anger from God turned into a love for God. I'm talking about within weeks, but I did have a period of time where I doubted God. I also was angry and sort of looking for revenge, but you can't go on with that kind of hate, okay? And I had a mission to do. I had to find my son's killer and I had to get some measure of justice and get him off the street. And then I promised God, if I could do that, I would go on a mission. My mission is related to the drug abuse and the deaths that are occurring. And I've been on that mission. You know, God helped me find my son's killer. And he did it without getting anybody killed or hurt or the witness killed or hurt. It's like your son gave you some messages. My son gave me some messages too. And it's really weird. He had always been kind of like pro-drug use, particularly marijuana. I never knew pro-drug use for cocaine or crack or anything like that. That was shocked that he was related to crack, but he did advocate for legalizing marijuana. And I don't really want to start a debate on that right now, but two things happened within days of his death. One thing told me that he had some depression. I could see that he seemed to be uh, struggling a little bit. I now know because of the drugs. At the time, I wasn't sure. I did question him about drugs and he said, no, I'm not using drugs, which unfortunately he was not being honest tell me he was depressed. And I talked to him about his depression. And a lot had to do with, he didn't really know what he wanted to be or what he wanted to do with his life. And so I had a hard time talk with him. And he did the same thing that your son did. I said, well, son, if you're depressed, I said, are you suicidal? And he said, no, dad, I'm not suicidal. He says, man, I got great parents. You've been great parents, dad. And I got a great girlfriend and I got a good life. And I appreciate all that. So I'm not suicidal, dad. I'm just struggling a little bit. I tried to help him and I said some things to him that seemed to really perk him up. It's unfortunately because it was days later that he died, but uh, the addiction, I think, just was maybe too strong. And he, 
I think it was one of those things where he said, I'll do it one more time. And he got killed. What he said was a few days before, I had talked to him about what he would do with his life. And he came and said, but dad, you know what? I think I'm going to go ahead. And he didn't want to be an architect. And I thought that was shooting a little high for him, at least initially. And that seemed to put a pressure on him because he was having trouble attaining that. And so I said, well, Danny, why don't you be a draftsman first? Okay, you know, they make pretty decent money. And I said, then maybe later on you can be an architect. And that seemed to relieve him. Maybe this is two or three days before he died. He, he comes and says, Dad, you know, I was thinking about what you said. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be an architect. But Dad, I want to let you know there's a couple of things that are important to me and my wife. And I said, what's that? And he says, well, number one, I want to be a writer. And I might have to do it part-time because I don't know if I can make a living at it. But I'd like writing to be a part of my life. And he said, other thing I'd like to do is I would like to encourage kids not to do drugs. Wow. And at the time, it's a shame because that disarmed me. I started thinking, this kid really gets it. He really gets it. In essence, what he was doing now, I think, was pleading in a sense, or I think he realized he had gotten trapped, okay, and didn't want other kids to fall into that same trap. And I've had a lot of guilt that he wasn't able to tell me what was going on in his life. But I loved him to death, so we would have worked through it. And uh, so part of my mission is, too, to try to get parents and kids to talk with each other. And there's just so much that I've learned from my son. And I'm carrying out some of his wishes right now. Do you think this is what he was asking for? He was basically saying, I'd like you, Dad, to take kids off drugs. Was that his message to you when he said, I would like to help kids get off drugs? Obviously, after he, after he was murdered, I knew that. I guess I didn't understand at the time, but the minute he was murdered, I said, that's what he was asking. Maybe he foresaw, at least subconsciously, he knew he might not be here forever. Do you mind if I read a little bit of the poem that he wrote at 1201? Is that okay, Dan? I'd love you to read it. For those who don't know, I had quite a few of those messages. Somehow it seems that good people, before they go, they know that they're going. And this was written four years before Danny's death. The title of it is 12.01 a.m., which is more or less around the time of his death. His time of death was around 12.08, I think, Dan. Is that correct? Yeah. A flip of the switch in the dark of the night, a cry in the distance, a life taken for spite. The day turns black, the light is gone, new killers are born. Now, Dan, I want to ask you, this to me seems to be someone who foresaw what was going to happen at 1208. Do you believe that to be true? Yes, I do. How can that be? How can someone know four years before that at 12.01 a.m. this was going to happen? I don't think he actually, it's a strange phenomenon, but I don't think he actually knew he was going to die. But I do think that God or some kind of way subconsciously I guess subconsciously he thought he might die and that he wanted to send some messages. And, you know, for a boy that's like 17, 18 years of age, to be worried about the death penalty and life and about new killers are born. You look back on that, he was so, so beyond his years. I don't know if you got to read everything, but I remember having a discussion with him before he wrote that poem. And uh, it was we were discussing the death penalty, and he was arguing against the death penalty. It turned into almost a little debate, almost an argument. And so at some point, though, he was sort of winning the argument. And I said, tell you what, you know what, you're probably right. The way they do the death penalty, 
they probably ought to do away with the death penalty. But you know what I feel like? I think they're not killing them fast enough. And I regret that I said that now, but at the time, it's really sort of how I felt because I viewed the death penalty at the time as being more of a deterrent. If somebody committed a murder in his neighborhood, they heard about that murder, and then you know, within a year or two, he was executed, then maybe the people in the neighborhood would say, well, geez, and look what happened to Johnny. But Don, it's like 13 years. My son, by the way, did not like that comment, that maybe they're not killing him fast enough. He had a different belief. He just had that belief that it was wrong. Yeah. We didn't have the right to take a life. And he was way ahead of me at that time. But I think you followed quickly. I mean, one of the most touching, I cried, really, I cried with tears when I heard in the documentary about the situation when you went to one of the sort of retired drug dealers in the neighborhood where where Danny was uh, murdered. And he said, I can find the killer. Do you want me to kill him? Can you tell me a bit about that? The whole time I was doing this investigation, I felt like I was living in a nightmare or a dream or a bad movie, but I was kind of getting used to it. And yet when he said that, it shocked me. I really hadn't thought, I was looking for who the killer was because I wanted to use the criminal justice system, not to kill him, but to put him away for a while so he couldn't hurt somebody. When he said, do you want him to have it killed? It was like, did I just hear that? Some people take life for $500, I could have had him killed. Why didn't you? What happened in your heart at the time? There was a part of me at that moment that almost said, maybe I should. And I, I'm apologizing for that. I, I shouldn't even have that glancing thought, but that old revenge thing in me, I was fearing for my life, I was fearing for my witness's life, and I was fearing for the fact that he might kill somebody. So in a crazy sort of way, I could almost justify having him killed. But I knew that was wrong. And the reason I knew it was wrong was my son's poem. My son made it clear that if I killed him, all I was doing was putting the light out. And I was a killer, which is what my son didn't want. And I now know I've learned a lesson. I'm a proponent now for ending the death penalty. And I hope one of the messages aside from the drug use thing is that maybe we can help end the death penalty. So that tendency to do the right thing, I mean, this is, I'd probably say this is heroic. So I don't know why you would feel guilty about that. I do not know of any parent who feels the pain of losing a child who wouldn't want his child avenged somehow, right? And to be able to make a choice to do the right thing. How many people today in our world are just going on with not maybe the $500 opportunity to kill their son's killers, but, you know, the $500 opportunity to destroy our planet or the $500 opportunity to to destroy someone else's life or the nasty message on social media that might destroy the life of a happy teenager? And how many of us are just so taking those opportunities in spite, like Danny said, it's becoming so easy for us not to do the right thing. What's happening in our world, Dan? Why do you think this is the case? I don't know. I did. I'm searching constantly and and trying to do my part, just like you're doing your part, to make people appreciate life more and to find happiness and not to be so bitter and not to be so vengeful. In my case, I blame a lot on drug use. I know I'm a little biased in that area, but I'm not far from wrong. You're not at all. I think you're absolutely spot on. Yes. So uh, that's another reason why I'm focused on this, because I do believe if we clear this drug abuse up and help people get by without drugs and find happiness, 
through artificial means by enjoying reality, enjoying the clouds and enjoying whatever they have. They don't even have to have a lot of material. They just have to have people who love them and that they can love back. I wish I knew the whole answer, but I think drugs have a lot to do with it. And I guess we just live in a complicated world too. And we all are driven by you're striving to become wealthy or to become really, really well off because that's a pursuit of happiness. It isn't at all. It's a lie. It's a big joke. Again, I mean, it's escape. I would probably say that this pursuit of wealth is just like uh, escaping to a drug in a way. It's trying to escape reality and thinking that all of those material possessions or appearing to be richer than another person is uh, something that will bring us happiness. And how often did that happen in our life? But I, I still want to go back to doing the right thing. I mean, you went totally out of your way. You completely stopped working. You wanted to find who did it. And you ended up in a place where you got your own life at risk. You were walking very, very dangerous grounds. And then you got the opportunity to take revenge and then you decide to do the right thing, which is a theme I found from our conversations to be recurring. You're constantly going back to do the right things. Why is that important? What difference does it make? Do you believe that we can also achieve justice by doing the wrong thing? Well, I hope it was in me before I learned it from my son. Because maybe my son learned it from me. I love that. I just didn't realize it. He saw something in me that I didn't see. And I didn't see some things in him. And it might have been a mirror. We sometimes inadvertently do the right thing ourselves. And maybe in raising our children, maybe setting a good example in certain ways, even though we have flaws. Your son pointed out what he thought was maybe some of your flaws. We all have flaws. But Danny and, and I think Ali have a good understanding that we're human. We're going to make mistakes, but the goal should be to make the world a better place and to treat each other with love and to treat each other well. So I, I also will give my mother a little credit. My mother was always a person like, do the right thing. And uh, we were a fairly poor family, and there were times that she did things that you really couldn't afford to do. And uh, sometimes it was money, but sometimes it was just baking a pie for somebody or something. I think that kind of got into my head. And then, you know, I was a doubter a lot of my life about God, but I was always searching for God. And along the way, I developed this faith and this just belief and do the right thing. I believe in Jesus' gospel. I believe Jesus was the son of God. Now, not everybody does, and I don't have a problem with that. If he wasn't God's son, he was a genius. I love this definition. You keep bringing up God. And I find that really interesting because, again, in this story, the reason why you ended up finding a witness that was willing to testify and the fact that she got on the stand was because she believed that this is what God wanted her to do. She believed that, if I remember correctly Shane's words, she said, God loves the truth. Yes. And I will step forward because I have the truth. The truth is in me. So let's talk a bit about how things turned. My son had come to me one time and said, Dad, you know, I think I'm an atheist. And I knew by his beliefs and thoughts that I didn't really agree with that. But he was a young man going through trying to figure the world out. And I said, Danny, I don't think you're an atheist. I think you might be agnostic. And, you know, he later on looked it up and he said, yeah, well, maybe I am. Okay. But I explained to him that I had been a doubter myself. And even at the time, I was still maybe a doubter. I said, but, you know, we all are found in our way. Okay. So I had a little discussion with him, which he also wrote a poem 
back around the same time he wrote the 1201. And it's called Picture Perfect, and I'm going to read it to you. So many years I've been looking, searching, trying to find an answer, but nothing's picture perfect. Hey, God, if there's a secret, let me in. I will believe again. What is love is the answer up above. How do you see past the impurity? And don't I know that you believe in love? Only such perfection could come from above, and we are just people living in a world of sin where it's hard to find anything to believe in. Is the answer love? I'm almost certain, by the way, him and Ali are sitting somewhere looking at us now and laughing. It's like, if you're doing that, Ali, I shall spank you when I meet you. But anyway, I mean... <laughs> I, I agree with you. And these guys could really be buddies, to be quite honest with you. Totally. It's like, it's so incredibly similar. Ali also put a lot of thought into the topic of God. And by the way, we're not evangelizing this to anyone. I think it's, I define God, the divine is the word I use, uh, the designer yes. sometimes, because sometimes we need to disassociate the divine from religion. So if you disagree with religion, that doesn't mean that you stop thinking about the idea of, is there a different being that is other than we are that could be in a divine relationship with us? And the answer is actually found in the search. And in my personal view, I think one of the biggest joys of my life is to sit with a friend and debate a topic around quantum physics, for example. And, you know, we've learned in the modern world to debate topics of material presence of things that we can measure, but we rarely ever debate the topics that are metaphysical. And I think these are topics that we would benefit heavily from looking into, and perhaps we can find ways to see more of life than beyond the physical world as you debate them. And when you and I lose loved ones, you have to shift your attention to what happens beyond the physical world. Otherwise, you can't find peace. I'm so impressed with my, my son and how it's fitting into our discussion right now because you just said some things. And I have a page here. I don't know if I sent this one to you or not, but it's a page in some of his writings. And one was in journal. Now, he journaled this. My greatest fear is losing the ones I love in life. I believe one's family and friends is the greatest asset in his life or her life. As I get older and each member of our family dies, I lose another part of myself. It hurts very badly to lose a person you were so close to for many years. And that is why I think this is the greatest fear in life. Was Ali's biggest fear too. This is incredible. Man, tell me a bit about this. What does it mean? What does God mean? What is that entity? I mean, if you didn't think of it as a Christian, what would that be? Universal doing the right thing, a universal helping each other, that concept of doing the right thing and helping each other, that is God, or it's love. You can define it as my son defined it. God is love. God is love. I agree with that, actually. It's true. And let me then go back to Shane, because again, one of the things that really touched me during this story is Shane, for those who haven't watched the documentary, you should watch the documentary, by the way. But she was the witness that you managed to find by literally reading through the phone book and calling. You are one persistent man, I will tell you that. <laughs> so you find this witness and she sort of gets so overwhelmed that she tells you the whole story, but now she's fearing for her life. And I think this was the turning point. And I want to go quickly through how things started to look up 
because I also want to cover the idea of your foundation and what you're attempting to do and the drugs issues in our societies today. I found it incredible, your relationship with Shane herself, Christie's, your daughter's relationship with her, and then your relationship with the person that killed your son. Can you tell us a bit about those? It's really strange, I guess. I agree. It is strange. <laughs> it just kind of happened. Uh, I had to do everything I could do to convince Shane, although all the basics were there. She had a belief in God. And then, if you want to call this fortunate or not, she had lost two brothers. That didn't exactly come out. And both brothers, their cases were never solved. And she knew there were witnesses. And she knew the frustration of losing a brother and not getting justice. She was quite frustrated that people simply wouldn't tell the truth and that there could be some measure of justice. So she shared that, but then she had to kind of balance that between fear of her own life and her kids. And she went up and down. And the police in New Orleans were no help whatsoever. They seemed to discourage her. And she had a fear of going to them. And uh, it was big hurdles that we had to overcome and we take too long to explain how many hurdles we had. But ultimately, she said it in the docuseries that we had worked and worked and wrote. His girlfriend, almost fiance, had written letters to him. My wife had written letters. We wrote letters on Mother's Day. And then we also, along the way, we built a relationship with her. We took her out to dinner twice while this thing was going on, which was great because we built a relationship. But also, it was a little scary because if that came out in the trial, it could have been construed as maybe us influencing her or bribing her or whatever. And fortunately, we didn't have to go to trial. We took a plea. That might have been part of the reason why I took the plea. Reasons one is I just cannot see him walking out totally free and innocent to maybe go kill again. Any type of justice at all, I figured we'd give him a chance to mature and maybe come out and be a different person. So my daughter actually related to her because Shane had lost a brother and my daughter had lost a brother. And they cried together. And ultimately, it pushed her over the top with a lot of other things that helped get her to that brink. Uh, but she came forward. And let me tell you, I had a, I sort of had a dream, and it just really didn't work out. Not everything you try to do, you succeed at. My dream was that in that neighborhood, if I could solve this crime, more witnesses would come forward, and they'd solve crimes, and crime would go down in that neighborhood. And much to my chagrin, they... That really didn't happen. Now, she got an award. I brought her before victim, and we got an award, gave her flowers, and we've stayed close with her ever since. And by the way, she just lost her husband to the coronavirus. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry to hear that. This poor girl. And I have helped out financially to some extent. We did a GoFundMe on her, and we managed to get about $3,000, you know, and because she's, she's still fairly poor, and she's living in a bad neighborhood but anything that would help us. So we've tried to do that. And that was before her husband died. She's an angel. Along with my son and God and everything else, if she would not have come forward, I do not know whether I'm as good as what people think I am. <laughs> then, then the private eye. No, no, no. Yeah. No, no. But I even mean this altruistic do the right thing. I mean, I might have just been so disappointed that maybe I would not have moved on like you did to do great things. Maybe I would have, but I wonder sometimes because when I developed my relationship with God, it really started to become a little bargaining thing and it just don't work that way. I did bargain and said, God, if you let me get my son's killer off the street and if you protect my witness and you protect me, no innocents get hurt, I'll do it the right way and I'll go on a mission for you. The big question would be is, 
what if I would not have gotten my killer off the street? Could I have still did that mission? I would like to think eventually I would have, but I'm not big enough to say for sure I would have. Okay, I learned a lot of lessons. You know, she became an example for me. If she could stick her neck out in that neighborhood and put her life on a line, surely me, surely I can go after doctors. I can go fight the battle on drugs. I can stick my neck out a little bit. She snuck her neck out way more than I did. I would go into her neighborhood and I kind of timed when I went. I took some precautions. There was a risk, okay? But I could go home to the suburbs into a nice $300,000 home and I could feel safe. She lived in that neighborhood. She asked me one time, Dan, do you think that you would do this if the story was reversed? I said, Shane, if it happened in my neighborhood, for sure. If I lived in your neighborhood, I'm not sure, Shane. But I need you to do this. And she did. And the rest now is history because I, I do believe that motivated me to do everything or it helped be a catalyst for me to continue on this mission on behalf of my son. So I give her a lot of credit. She's an absolute hero. I'm so sorry to hear her loss. And I really would encourage listeners, if you want to reach out to Dan, and I'll, I'll give you his uh, email at the end of the conversation to maybe try to help. Let me ask you this. So it seems to me that death is all around us. So what would you recommend for people who are losing loved ones? Did you feel that the mission is what got you out of this? Did you feel that you could have found any other way out of this? I wish I would say I was more of an expert, even though I've been through what you've been through. Every situation's unique. I had a relationship with God. I bargained. It seemed as though he answered my bargain. I went through and did the right thing. I do believe I had that in me, but it had to be pulled out by the tragedy. I hope that some of these people that are losing loved ones, and I hate to say it, but it's a little bit fortunate in most cases, they're losing loved ones who have had a full life, that have some age. When you lose a boy like yours at 22 and my son at 22, it's like they didn't really have a full life. Although I reflect back now, in a way they did. I believe so. I believe Ali had a wonderful life. It's not measured in time. Really. So did Danny. And, and Danny told me so. When I had that discussion with him, he said, you got, I, got, I got a great life, Dad. You know, what a gift that he was able to tell me that. And Ali was able to relate that to you. We are both extremely fortunate. Oh my God. I was waiting for you to say that. Can you imagine you're saying after losing your wonderful child, we're both extremely fortunate. I have to tell you openly, I feel the same way. I mean, I miss him tremendously every single day, but I feel fortunate. I feel that my wonderful son had a wonderful life and made a massive difference to humanity. And I wrote in Soul for Happy openly that if Ali knew the results of his departure, he would have volunteered to die. He would have definitely said, if I can help so many people, that would be a life worth giving, which is really, really interesting. You're helping people very interestingly, Dan. I really want to come to the point of drug abuse and the mission yes. that you've set for yourself. I think it's so interesting that you didn't stop after you found Danny's killer. First, I should mention you had forgiveness for that person, which I think is quite noble. But then you moved on to say no other kids should go through that path and no other parent should suffer the fate that I suffered. Tell me about that. Well, remember now, I made a bargain with God that I'd go on a mission to try to save lives. Okay, so fulfilling a promise. I felt that God had answered my promise. But I also thought, my son 
wouldn't have any other way. One, he didn't want his killer. He would have hoped that his killer got rehabilitated and had a good life. It's bizarre, but he really would have felt that way. He even wrote it openly. I mean, he told you about it in the discussions, in the conversations about the death penalty. And I asked him, I said, if your mother got killed or your sister got killed, you wouldn't want the killer? Absolutely not, Dad. What an amazing young man. I could not believe that. A 17-year-old kid telling me that? I probably left thinking he's lying to himself. You know, if he really lost his mother, he would feel differently. Well, I got to give him credit now. We don't know what would have happened if he lost his mother. God forbid she's still here and she's been a rock. Uh, But I do feel fortunate now. And my boy is up there saying, go dad. (laughs) Something to make the world a better place. In my case, if I can stop kids from trying drugs and finding some solutions to reduce the problem. It's hard to say this. I think he would have given his life if he knew. I would feel the same. The story of the doctor that was in your neighborhood that was writing prescription after prescription after prescription and how you went totally out of your way into the danger zone to try and fix this somehow. And then you compare this to the number of places that do wrong and write those kinds of prescriptions and how their drugs become such a part of the American life, if you want, but nobody does anything about it. Tell me how you handled this. Again, one of the parts that really, really touched me was how you recalled having given certain pills to a certain individual that unfortunately died as a result. Tell me about that story. Again, I look like some sort of a super great person, and I hope to think that I am in ways. But this tragedy changed me in a very, very positive way. I might have been good, but I was not great, okay? And maybe now, I hate to even say I'm great now, but as a pharmacist, prior to my son's death, when an addict would come into my store, I would look down upon him, and I wasn't extremely helpful. And most of the time, I just would refuse to fill that prescription. I did think it was wrong that they were taking these prescriptions, but I didn't really have a lot of sympathy or empathy for them. I hate to admit that. But I have to be honest, I changed after my son died from addiction and I started studying addiction and I started seeing these young people walk into my store and I knew they were falling into that trap of getting caught up in this addiction. And I knew what my son's demise was and I started seeing them dying and I would go to their funerals. I got to do something about this. I'm in a position, I'm in a unique position, having been educated and had uh, hard-found wisdom, you might call it. I'm in a position that I can do something about this. It's crazy, but initially, again, I thought I could go to the police. Okay, again, and so initially, I started out trying to help the police. I did that in my son's case, and I got so much resistance and so much crap that I had to go around them, and I hate to say all police are bad. They're not. There were some good cops in this thing, but my experience was really bad. And that was 20 years ago. I hope it's improved. No, I had to do it because nobody else was doing it. And kids were dying. And the bureaucratic way they're doing it is so slow that I've seen kids dying. It's going to take us another year to do this so that we can get a strong enough case. And I'd say, bull crap! how many people are going to die in this year? Let me tell you, I also got some breaks. People would call it luck. I call it divine. I call it God-driven. What actually did her in was a patient walked into my store with a particularly horrible amount of prescription. She was about a 110-pound 
young girl about 19 years of age. And this crazy doctor, as prescribed medication that was going to surely kill her. I was able to document that and present it to the, the medical board. They instantly knew that they could go to trial and win because of this insane thing she did. Now, how did that person walk into my store? I had a reputation where people didn't want to come to my store. <laughs> yeah, it's like you're the annoying one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I had people wouldn't come because, you know, I'd give them some crap, you know. And, and honestly, when I say giving them crap, you know, I would sometimes still fill their prescriptions. And in some cases, maybe they needed it or maybe they went an addict. And if I didn't give it to them, they go do heroin or something. Okay. So I use some judgment in that case. But in every case, I would walk out there with their prescription back then. And I would talk to them about how, what's going to go wrong, how you can overdose and death. And then I'd make them sign the back of the prescription. I would write a few things down that, you know, this can cause death. And I would get them to sign the prescription. Number one, I wanted them to have somebody tell them that because I knew in the past, I wouldn't have told them that. I'd have either filled it or not filled it, and I would not have counseled them. Some people didn't understand this, okay? And so I would talk to 10, hoping I could affect change in one of them. And I did. I wish the statistics were more like 9 out of 10. But one life, how much is one life worth, as you said on the trial? How much is one life worth? Did you notice that situation in the documentary, and they brought it up, and I'll highlight it a little bit, the, uh, the deposition with her attorney and... Uh, you know, it was official. They had a court stenographer or whatever, you know, taking all this stuff down. And her attorney gets to the point where, number one, he's putting me down. He's trying to make me and my son into drug dealers some kind of way. Whatever he can do to, to defame me, he's doing. And we counter that pretty well. And eventually he gets down to, well, you were so obsessed with persecuting my doctor so that you would do anything. Let me ask you this, Mr. How much money would you have spent? How much time would you have spent? And I said, what's a life worth? He comes back and says, you don't get to ask the questions, Mr. Snyder. Oh, wow. So then I said, that wasn't a question. That was the answer. (laughs) Yeah. I hate to preach, really. But, you know, I think our world requires more than Schneiders. I think the reality here is between some of us who would want to defend a wrongdoer because it's a job and this is what I'm supposed to do and make money and others who would actually step up and do the right thing. And, and by the way, the right thing might have to be a big organization and initiative like what we're going to talk about to help kids around the world escape this kind of demise and that kind of threat. But it could simply also be your best friend who you can obviously see signs of depression on or signs of addiction on. And can you actually take a step and do something to just help one person? One person. Because how much is a life worth? In what I write about in my next book, which is not yet published, but I write about what's called hypernormalization of reality, that so many of those deaths and depression cases and people really losing their lives in so many ways, we now take for granted. We accept them. Nobody steps up and does anything about them. We just accept them. And I think your story, Shane's story, stepping up and saying, I lost two brothers and I'm not going to let this young man be lost without the right witness stepping up and saying the truth. Correct. Tell me about Tunnel of Hope to really bring people to the extent of how your journey has gone and why, how, and what are you doing? We had a picture 
The last picture that we took, my entire family, the Christmas before my son's death, he died in April. So this is the Christmas right before his death. And in that picture is myself, my wife, my son, his girlfriend, almost fiance, and my daughter. It was a pretty picture and I wanted it framed. So we had just given a speech at his high school. I call it a talk, not a speech. And so we went to Walmart to buy a frame. And some parents came up to us and said, geez, and boy, we need more people like you. You did the right thing. I heard about that talk at the school and well, I really want to congratulate you and more has to be done. And so that made me feel good. So my wife then picks out this frame. Now, I don't know if, how well you can see this, but see some of the comments on the frame? If you can imagine it, you can make it happen. One person can make a difference. Anything is possible and you can do it. Yeah. But what you also don't see in it is there's a halo above us. There's a famous hotel in the city. It used to be the Roosevelt. Maybe it's still the Roosevelt. And in it, they have a big, big hallway like, and they make a tunnel of lights. So it still didn't register to me. But I think I started sensing this halo of hope. And so I go to work the next day, and I parish there's this group of trees that form a tunnel. And it hits me. What is the name of my mission? And it hits me. It's Tunnel of Hope. It just came. It's like, you know, because we're in this dark tunnel in life, but in the drug situation for sure. But there's always light at the end of the tunnel or hope at the end of the tunnel. So that's where the Tunnel of Hope came from. I think that's God-given too. Truly, I mean, the hope here is that we would help young men and women get off drugs, avoid drugs in the first place, and perhaps get parents to engage better, to connect more, to not let the disaster happen. And I think this is, this is something that is highly needed. Well, let me tell you how I've evolved on that. I still have that as a mission, but I see myself now as more of a leader, you might say. I admire people that get down in the trenches and work with these kids. I tried that for a while. The statistics are bad. It's hard to handle that. Fortunately, I think now I can help encourage people to do that. I think that's where your passion is and where your mission is. And I think this is where it starts. You have one of them. I'm behind you fully because I know what a life is worth. If anyone has gone through the same pain you and I have gone through, they would know. Then I can talk with you for hours. And I think we will just let everyone go and continue to talk. But uh, I'm so grateful for you sharing so openly. I think, you know, if we had more of you in the world, we would make a massive difference. And I really believe in the idea of starting the movement so that we can protect our young men and women. And I really, really support everything that you've been doing. You're one of my heroes. I'm really grateful for your time. Everyone listening, please help Dan out. So uh, Dan is generous enough to even answer his email personally, dschneider at T of hope instead of tunnel. It's T-O-F-H-O-P-E. And dschneider is D-S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R at tofhope.com. Or just go ahead and visit tunnelofhope.org. Watch the documentary, The Pharmacist, on Netflix and understand how an incredible man, for the love of his son, took himself from being a pharmacist in a small town in Louisiana to really, really changing the world. 
Thanks, Dan, so much. I thank you too, Mo. We are brothers. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for Mo Gaudet, Slow Mo, Soul for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.